Good morning, Bethel. And I am so excited about our new series that we are starting today on the life of David. And this will carry us all the way up until the Christmas season. You know, how many of you enjoy reading biographies? Any biography readers in here? Man, that's one of my favorite. I love getting into a good biography and seeing, you know, someone who started here and how they got to here and all of the things in between that led them to this point. That's one of, one of my favorite things to read. And so what we're going to do is it's really we're going to walk through the life of David because Samuel is almost like a biography of this, this great king of Israel named David. And we're going to see where he started in his life and how he failed, but yet how God used him. And through this series, we're going to see the three circles. And I'll highlight that and pull that out. So we're not going to forget the three circles, even though we finished that series this past week. And we've got the, the, um, the graphic over here on the back wall because we want this to stay in the forefront of your mind. We want you to continue thinking through these three circles. And we're going to see how that plays out in David's life as well. But maybe there's been times in your life where you have asked, where did God go? Maybe you thought he had forgotten about you or was distracted with someone else or someone more important. Maybe you thought, man, I feel like I'm on an island and I'm all alone. Maybe that's you having those feelings here today. I saw a writer one time refer to these times in life as blank spaces. It's just a blank space where you feel like there's nothing happening in life, and it's just a blank, a blank spot in your life. But what I've learned about those moments is this is where it seems like where, where God is not doing anything at all in those moments. That is where he's doing his best work. In your life. And that's what you're going to see today in David's life. Let me give you just a little bit of historical background to bring us up to our text. So at this point in the nation of Israel, Israel, of course, came through the left Egypt out of slavery 40 years in the wilderness. They came in, they conquered the land of Israel. And throughout that time, God would send prophets, He would send judges to the land to help guide the people to present this is the word of the Lord. But the nation of Israel looked all around them and said, you know what, all of these other nations have kings. We want a king. We want to be like these other nations. Essentially, they were telling God, God, you're not enough for us. We want a man to rule over us. And God finally said, all right, I will give you a king. The first king of Israel was a man named Saul. Saul was head and shoulders above the rest of the men. He was very cunning, very tall, kingly looking, but he did not follow God. As we, before we get to our passage today, God said, I am done with Saul. I'm done with him. So we pick up our passage here in 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel was a prophet. He was a great prophet in Israel. If you remember back on Mother's Day, if you were with us, we talked about the story of Hannah, which was his mom, and the, the story of how God answered her prayer and provided a son, a son named 
Samuel. Samuel was a, a great prophet in the Old Testament. So we're going to pick up here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Samuel picks up. He heads to Bethlehem, where he finds Jesse there at a kind of a community event. And he says, Jesse, I have a word from the Lord. And Jesse recognizes Samuel and says, oh, my. Okay, okay, Samuel, because Samuel was so revered by the people in Israel. And Samuel said, God told me that one of your sons will be Israel's next king. And being the father, he thinks, ah, oh, I know exactly who that will be. That is my firstborn, the pride of our home, Eliab. And so he sends for Eliab, and Eliab walks over. We pick up in verse 6 of 1 Samuel. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is Samuel's thoughts. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now Samuel, of all people, should have known better. Because this is the same path that it went down with Saul. This is Saul all over again. Just because you may look like a king on the outside does not mean that you have the heart of God's king on the inside. And Samuel, of all people, should have known this. But even prophets of God sometimes get swept up with the charm of the outward appearance. So God says, Samuel, I'm looking for someone different in my king. I'm, looking on, I'm not looking on the outside. I'm looking on the inside. And by the way, if you trace Eliab's story through the rest of 1 Samuel, you'll see that he turns out to be an arrogant, critical, untrusting of God at key places. Sure, maybe he's an all-American athlete, a valedictorian. Maybe he's voted most likely to see the business journals 40 under 40. But he's not the one God is looking for. And so Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse sends for his secondborn. This guy's just a little bit more, less impressive than Eliab, but he still fits the profile. Tall, good-looking, smart, athletic, but God says, not him. So Samuel says, do you have another? And they do this seven times. Seven times. Verse 10, let's read. And Jesse made seven of his sons passed before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And I love this next question that Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? Did you forget about any kids? Is essentially what, <laughs> what he's asking. Did you forget about any of them? Oh yeah, there's one more. You know, how many of you are, are like this in your, your, your home? Maybe you're the middle child or the youngest child, and you're kind of always the, the, oh, yeah, we forgot about this one. Maybe, maybe, maybe you were the David. And he said, there remains yet the youngest, 
but behold, he is keeping the sheep. You know, the Hebrew word for youngest is a rare word in the Hebrew. It's a blend of two words, a blend of young and unimportant. And the best way that scholars can translate it is runt. He is the runt of the family. And what is he out doing? He's out keeping the sheep, which was considered the lowest job in Israel, the kind of job that needed to be done by somebody, but nobody wanted to be that somebody. But that was David. Think of it kind of like the guy in the circus following behind the elephant with the giant pooper scooper. Somebody's got to do it, but nobody wants to. That's David. And so Samuel said to Jesse, verse 11, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Ruddy is another unusual Hebrew word. Some translators says mean it, he was redheaded and freckled. He had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. He's cute. The point is, he doesn't look like a valiant warrior or king. He's not someone you're looking to lead men in battle. When you're choosing a warrior king, you want a dude that looks like he can kill other dudes. We don't know for sure how big William Wallace, the Braveheart character, was, but we do know that his sword was five foot six inches, which means he was a big dude, meaning he was the kind of king that you wanted to lead men in to battle. David was the opposite of this. He was the runt with the baby face. You know, when I think about this kind versus the William Wallace, I think about the Justin Bieber or the Jonas Brothers. Who would you want leading you into battle? That's kind of how I picture this. But this is who God chooses. Let's keep reading here. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Let me ask you a question. Why all the drama and all of the rigmarole in this story? If God knew he wanted David, why didn't God just tell Samuel, I want the youngest David? Why make him go through all of the trouble through all seven older brothers? Why go through all of this charade and drama? I think it's to emphasize several things that we're going to learn from in this story this morning. Number one, we see that God chooses the unlikely. And this is one of the most consistently recurring points in the Bible. God chooses the unlikely. It literally runs from the front of your Bible to the back. When you look at the 12 disciples, they were the unlikely people. They were the blue collar, the Joes, not the religious people that God chose, that Jesus chose to spend his time with on this earth and then to send them out to the ends of the earth. 
It was God choosing the meager, humble offering of poor Abel and not the rich, prosperous offering of Cain in Genesis. He bestows a blessing to the younger, wimpier Jacob, not the firstborn manly man's all-country athlete Esau. He promises the messianic lineage to the plain Leah, not the beautiful Rachel. He chose to lead, he chose Moses to lead the people out of Israel and not the silver-tongued brother of Aaron. The mother of Israel's greatest prophet, he chose Hannah, not Penina. We see this thread all throughout Scripture that God chooses the most unlikely to accomplish his purposes. Secular human history has always favored the most beautiful women and the strongest men, but God consistently chooses the Jacobs, the Leahs, the Hannahs, the puny Davids to build his kingdom. Which leads us to the second lesson we can learn from this story, and that in God's kingdom, character is paramount. Go back to verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16. After looking at Eliab, he said, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Later in Scripture, we're going to see that God says that David is a man after his own heart. When God looks for leaders... He doesn't look at what we value. He prioritizes character over charisma. And that's because what we need in a king is someone who could restore us to God. You see, our main problem is that we have been separated from God by our pride, our disobedience. And that means what we need most is someone who can reconnect us to restore that right relationship to God. God doesn't want us to try to find our identity, our security, our happiness apart from him. In a Saul or an Eliab, he wants us to find those things in him. His power and beauty and significance and security and abundance. So when God is choosing his leaders, he doesn't say, wow, he's such a sharp dresser. Or they have an impressive resume or stunning IQ. Look how tall he is or how strong he is or how beautiful she is or how commanding they are. He looks at the heart. He is looking for someone who will listen to him and allow his spirit to work through them. The universal human mistake is to look for salvation in the wrong places. What God was teaching Israel through this whole ordeal is that salvation comes from being united to God. And when it comes to being united to God, character is paramount it is paramount but that's number two but there's a side application here too and i think this is directly for us today when, when evaluating people whether we're talking about a potential boyfriend girlfriend 
potential spouse, who you put in your circle of friends, who you are going to hire as an employee, we should prioritize character. Prioritize character. We still tend to evaluate people the way Israel evaluated potential kings. Who looks the best? Who is going to be the best or benefit me the most? What will give me the most status? Who will make me the most money? But that's a terrible way to go through life. Character brings more blessing to life than any of those things. How many times have you heard a guy say, and they think this is romantic when they say this, the moment I saw her, I knew I would marry her. Yeah, like every Hallmark movie you watch, basically. I give my wife a hard time, like, you've seen this plot a hundred times. It's just they sub in and out the characters. You know, that sounds romantic, but when we think about this in light of what we have just seen, in the light of verse 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, that's really horrible. You don't know what she's like. Is she a woman of integrity? How does she handle conflict? Does she hold a grudge? Is she obsessive? You don't even know that what that first time saying she may be an axe murderer for all you know you don't know but one the only thing you know is that you find her attractive that is not romantic quite frankly it's it's really stupid men or women i guarantee you that 20 years from now into your marriage it's not that pretty face or that great body that is going to bless you the most it's whether they love god It's whether they obey him and whether or not they are a person of grace, integrity, and character. Prioritize character in all of your relationships. On the flip side of that question is, how much time do you prepare on your own character? If that's what God is looking for and what you should be looking for, how much time do you spend working on that yourself. The New Testament, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the New York Times journalist David Brooks talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. What are resume virtues? Might be something like, she accomplished this. She graduated with this honor. She has, he has this degree. Those are great, but do you ever notice those kind of things in a eulogy? At a funeral? No. What do they talk about at your funeral? They talk about what a loyal friend you were. What a sacrificial mother you were. How she always put others first. How he always gave you the benefit of the doubt and made time for you. How they were always so kind and forgiving. Those are eulogy virtues. If they say good things at your funeral, that's what it will be about. It's not going to be about your resume virtues. It's going to be your eulogy virtues. We spend so much time in our life working on and building the resume virtues, but how much time do we spend building our eulogy virtues? In the end, even to us, what matters the most? The Christian philosopher John Lennox points out that 
being unique does not in and of itself make something beautiful. There are all kinds of things that are unique that are not beautiful. What makes you beautiful in God's eyes is character. So if you're going to focus on anything, focus on developing character. Number three, third lesson we get here is character is best formed in the blank spaces. Again, verse 13 ends with Samuel, the great prophet, his hand on David's head, the oil of anointing running down his back, the Holy Spirit rushing upon him in this verse 13, then silence. Blank space. A blank space in David's life. The narrative ends in verse 14 and it shifts to Saul. And David heads back to the pasture for months, possibly even years. In fact, if you look down in verse 19, it says when they came to look for David a few years later, they have to get him from the sheep. After being anointed king of Israel, he's still chasing sheep around the desert. Think about that. Think about what must be going through David's mind. This great prophet comes, I'm the next king, but I'm still out here in the desert chasing sheep? God, where are you? Blank space in David's life. And here's what's more. Even after all these things start happening in David's life, Saul gets jealous of David. We're going to see in these coming verses and weeks to come when David kills Goliath, that famous story. David becomes this mighty warrior. Saul gets jealous, and he hunts him like a criminal for over a decade. And David's living in caves. He's fearing for his life. And during that time, David's probably asking, but I was anointed king. I know my destiny. Where did God go? Did he make a mistake in my life? David finds himself where many of you find yourself today. There was no mistake. You see, God uses the pasture or the wilderness to prepare his leaders. That's where God produces the character in you to lead. Psalm 78, 72, David wrote, With upright heart he shepherded the man, guided them with his skillful hand. Those are the things, those things were learned in the pasture, not the palace. Church, this is how it plays out in our life today. When we think about this story, you think, hey, mom, what did you do today? Some moms will sigh and say, oh, I feel like I just changed a dozen dirty diapers today. And you feel like your day was worthless. No, God was building character in you. Your work has value in and of itself. You were serving another human made in the image of God. But God was also at work in you, shaping you for his service. Hey, businessman, businesswoman, what did you do today? I went to work for the man again at a dead-end job which God would say, no, he is building character in and through you. Who knows what God is doing in and through your faithfulness? 
No doubt David probably had that same thought you have at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. The sheep again. (laughs) When you say, this report again. Hey, student, what did you do? I studied those lame things about history and calculus that I'll never, ever use again. To which God would say, no, God is building character in and through you. God is using this time to prepare a far more important exam in life. Friend, here's the rule of the pasture time. Faithfulness in the small produces power in the big. Faithfulness in the small produces power in the big. When God wants to prepare a leader, he always sends them to the pasture. We all see this, this consistent theme in Scripture. It's almost axiomatic. When God chooses someone, he sends them through a time of monotonous faithfulness where they have to show whether they'll be faithful in the small things. We see that in the life of Moses. Forty years on the backside of the desert, tending cattle before God uses him to rescue the people of Israel out of Egypt. You see this even in life. If you know, so many of us play sports. You think about this in the sports realm. How many times when you, you'll hear a coach say in football, do your assignment, set the edge, fill the gap, all of these things that seem so monotonous. But God is using these little things over and over again. People always make the mistake of reading these Old Testament stories as if they're only about us. We think the moral of the story is don't judge a book by its cover. Be like David, a man of character, which it is a great lesson for us to learn. And yes, as I've shown you, those are good lessons to draw. But the Bible is not about us. And it's not even, this passage is not even primarily about David. Let me prove that to you. First, who among us could really say, I have the heart that God is looking for? I'm a man or woman after God's own heart. To be honest, when I read that phrase, God looks on the heart, I don't find that altogether encouraging. Even on my best day, I'm fearful, judgmental unkind, I'm selfish, unforgiving, willing to bend the truth to get out of a jam. I know the sin and the wickedness in my own heart. So when I read that passage, I don't find that altogether encouraging. Imagine if attached to the side of your head was a little LED monitor displaying what you were thinking at all times. That would be terrifying, wouldn't it? That would be terrifying. How horrible, embarrassing would that be Yet, that is what God sees. I want to have a good heart, but I know my heart is not good enough for God's fellowship. And if God is looking at the heart, then I'm in trouble. By the way, ultimately, David's heart was not that good either. We'll see that in later weeks. Which is why you have to read these stories not first and foremost about us or about David, But the Bible, from cover to cover, is about Jesus. Think about it. Don't you see David's story is a silhouette that one day Jesus will step into? 
the parallels of Jesus' story and David's story. After David was anointed and filled with the Spirit, he went back up into the pasture, and he was in the wilderness. What happened after Jesus was anointed at his baptism, the Spirit of God descended upon him. He was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus was a man of perfect character, the, the one truly after God's own, own heart. But unlike David, Jesus never ended up in a palace. The man that was truly after God's own heart ended up on a cross where he would die for our sins. You see, even though he was perfect, we were his sheep. He died for all the ways I wasn't a man after his own heart. Because of that, I can be received like a man after God's own heart. In him, I can hear, you are my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Not because of my heart, but because of what Jesus did upon a cross to redeem me. And when we receive him, God's spirit rushes in. And begins to work in our heart, reshaping our heart into one like his, into someone after his own heart. And because he died in my place, I know that even when I don't have the heart that God desires, he will never leave me and he will never forsake me. Because Jesus paid it all. And see, that's what's really important to understand that when we go through our pasture time, when we're out in the wilderness, when we feel those blank spaces in our life, because the worst part about those blank spaces is feeling like you're abandoned by God. But because of the cross, I know that I'm not abandoned. Even when I feel alone, I know I'm not, and I know that in all things my life is being directed by God's gracious just like God worked in David's pasture, in his wilderness, he's working in mine. He's working in yours. Even when I can't feel he's working, I know it. Even when I can't see it. And just like God brought his greatest work out of David's pastures and wilderness, so he is bringing his greatest works in and through you out of yours. In the wilderness, you will learn to trust him. In the wilderness, you will learn the healing through forgiveness that makes you a great healer. It's like I've heard said, those who have been profoundly healed through forgiveness become great healers in forgiveness. That is what God is doing in your blank spaces and your life. So friend, I beg you, worship Jesus. Hang on through the blank spaces because God is our work. Let's pray.